The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA show Q&A edition for this week. Got a uh, sunny day in northern Colorado, finally. It's not raining. We've gotten more than a year's worth of rain already in the first six, seven months of the year. So All right, hold on, it's hold getting on, hold me on. out of, it's getting I, me out I, of knowing. I, I have to interrupt, folks. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know me. I never interrupt. And this is Jim, by the way. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Chris, can you define? He's making it sound like this is rivaling Noah and and his ark. Can I, thought, define, I think I've seen several boats floating down the street. That no, they, they were attached to trailers. Look closely; they were being pulled by trucks. <laughs> I am so fed up with everyone in Colorado whining. Because it has actually rained a little bit in the state this spring and very, it's very early summer. It's been torrential. The word is torrential it's not- rain. It's horrible. It, we oh, live here I, for the sun and outdoor activities. We don't live for mosquitoes and moisture. Have and- you seen how green everything is? Yes, it's oh disturbing. Oh, my God. It's disturbing. <laughs> Folks, Colorado, like the West, is very arid, very dry. But for some bizarre reason, we're getting a lot of rain this year. And the Midwest, I was reading an article today and was talking with a couple of clients of ours, one in uh, Wisconsin and I think another in Minnesota. Uh, But they were telling me how relatively warm and dry it is. Mm. And apparently, Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, and Ohio uh, are in drought stage. So... Mm. Uh, I heard yesterday on the news, the first time since 2000, I moved here uh, September, excuse me, yeah, September of 1999. So essentially, since I moved here, this is the first time that there is not one drought area in the state of Colorado. That is amazing. And you're complaining about it? The first time in 23 23- I've years? adapted to living in a drought area, so it's not easy to go back. <laughs> we've I had more rain. I just read we had more. We've had more rain year to date than Seattle. That's not right. <laughs> That's not right in any way. 
I, I don't quite know. It depends where. We have very spotty hit or miss rain. But uh, I am enjoying this. I would not be contemplating moving from Colorado if our weather was like this every year. Uh, I am just loving the green. I haven't turned on my sprinkler. My grass is green. I'm looking out my window right now. I got two little bunnies eating the grass. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful, folks. So don't listen to Chris. Come to Colorado this year. It's green, wildflowers everywhere, still snow-capped peaks. The, the rivers are flowing like crazy. Sadly, two people, both from out of state, got too close to a waterfall in Rocky Mountain National Park and died 121, 125. But don't get too close to the waterfalls or try to jump in in your early 20s. You think you're invincible. But it's beautiful. Come visit Colorado this year. All right. That's, that's it. I'm done. Let's move on. Okay. I knew you were going to whine about this. I knew you were going to start. No, I'm happy about today. I'm looking out my window. It's, it's very sunny and dry for now. Maybe I can mow my lawn finally. I love it. I love it. Absolutely, positively love the green. Okay. Uh, You can continue. I'll shut up. Well, I'm done. We got to go to questions now. Oh, (laughs) okay. That was the whole thing. I guess that was uh, bantering. Okay. Exactly. All right. We're going to do some social security questions uh, or question as we, we begin. We're going to try to clean up, folks, the annuity questions that came in. Uh, when we were having our National Annuity Awareness Month, which uh, is over now. So we'll talk about annuities again, but not anytime soon. And uh, we got a lot of questions in on annuities that I couldn't get to. So uh, since Social Security and a traditional income annuity are very, very similar, I call them kissing cousins, uh, rather than doing two Social Security questions, we'll do a Social Security question and an annuity question. And we will do other questions on today's show as well. All right, so this one, Chris, this um, Social Security question, I don't think we've ever had one like it. So that's why I wanted to read it. It's kind of long. I'm going to do a lot of skipping, but it had to do a little bit with military and a little bit uh, with other items. Mm. So Mm -hmm. um, I thought it would be a, a pretty good one. Okay. Uh, let's see. He gave us a hint for the state he lives in. So he begins, dear Jim and Chris, thank you for all you do and for your help with social security and retirement. I live in a Southern state that most people don't know. Well, I think that they know the state. I shouldn't have paused there. There was no comma. I should have read right through. I live in a Southern state that most people don't know has two different time zones and also the most produced items are and i don't know if it's in order uh, civilian aircraft engines and parts hmm two time zones and makes a lot of aircraft i got this one because i knew the state had two time zones I didn't know about the aircraft. I would, I would have thought Washington, you were just whining that we got more rain than Seattle, but I would have assumed Washington produced more aircraft. I don't know. Well, I don't think that's what it said. They produced more than Washington. They just, the, the number one produced item in that state. Oh, the number one produced item in the state. You're correct. Okay. Yeah. Plus Washington's not in the South. So I'm hoping you wouldn't think that that was a possibility. <laughs> 
Well, um, south of Canada. <laughs> True. Um, this one's got me a bit stumped. I'm going to say Georgia. Georgia? Mm-hmm. Georgia? No, Georgia doesn't have two time zones. Think mm. of it, Florida, because that little panhandle that sticks out. But they make um, aircraft and stuff so much. I, I didn't realize that was such a big thing in Florida. I didn't really, I, and I think of Florida. It's so freaking hot down there. They must have to run AC in these massive, massive... Well, everything Production is AC places. down there now. That's basically what made Florida inhabitable back in the day. In the 60s or whenever, when, when AC became available, the the flood of people started heading down there finally. Okay. Um, well, anyways, he's from Florida. Oh, okay. interesting. And again, folks, we do not vet these answers or questions or hints. We're just giving them and we repeat them. But, um, Okay. Um, I have been listening to maybe four months, so he's relatively new, and have back-listened to all your old podcasts for about a year back. Mm-hmm. I have two questions, Social Security question and a life insurance question. Um, you can do the Social Security. Actually, his life insurance question, Chris, I'll give a little hint. It's going to be a lot of a planning question, so you can definitely, definitely uh, lend your expertise to it as well. Okay. I am 64 years old. My wife is 62. We are legal guardians of our adult disabled biological son who has born with Down syndrome. He lives at home with us and will require someone to manage his life for the rest of his life. I am retired military and now working a civil service job, but planning to retire from the government later this year. I will receive an additional small FERS pension. Uh, FERS, do you want to explain what FERS is in this little small pension he receives? Or do you yeah, want to that's the that Federal time? Employee Retirement System. So that's the defined benefit pension plan that uh, is available to federal government employees. Do you want to talk about the additional? Oh, the additional small FERS pension. Okay, I'm sorry. My wife currently does not have enough credits to receive Social Security on her own record. She is four quarters short and only had small income paying jobs, including military service for six years. I am somewhat confused as to my strategy for claiming Social Security. I realize the benefit of waiting until 70, but I understand with a disabled son, there are additional benefits he is eligible for. He is currently receiving $500 SSI. And do you want to define SSI? That's uh, supplemental payments. It's essentially um, uh, welfare is a a slang term, I guess, that people use for that. So it's for low-income individuals, or in this case, a disabled child who can't work. And so low-income by default, right? So SSI. It's uh, supplemental support insurance. Uh, boy, I don't know why the uh, what that stands for is failing me at this moment, but essentially that's what it is, is it's assistance for low-income folks. Okay. Uh, As my wife currently has no benefit on her own record, she could receive 50% since we have a child in care. I was told my primary insurance amount is $3,000 at my full retirement age. So our family maximum would be around $5,400. I have 
I have paid for the Maximize My Social Security software, and unfortunately, it does not do a good job of estimating my family benefits because my wife has none on her own accord, and my son is disabled. Here is my question. One thing I found in the documentation online about Social Security benefits says there are adjustments made for years worked in the military on active duty. As both my wife and I have full years of military service, I am wondering if the amounts reported on our record are already adjusted for those factors, both my earnings and my wife's, if she goes back to work to get the additional quarters she needs for her own benefit. In any case, how are military earnings adjusted as I have never heard Chris address this on the show before. Do you want to answer that before he gets into his disabled family benefit question, or do you want me to keep reading? Yeah, let's tackle that. It's probably, this is kind of a long one, so we'll do it in pieces. So uh, I think I've talked about this maybe once before, but it's not something that comes up very often. But there are special credits applied to your earnings record at times if you qualify, if you were if you had active military duty during certain years that it isn't, you know, blanket for everyone. But uh, prior to, and and while you were talking, as soon as military came up, I, I pulled it up here from the Social Security website. And uh, essentially, um, if you were in the military prior to 1957, which is not this person because they're not old enough, but um, I don't believe the military uh, participated in Social Security prior to 1957. So they would actually... Uh, drop in earnings into your earnings record uh, if you had active service uh, prior to that. But that's um, not going to apply to this person. What might apply is what's called uh, special extra earnings for military service. So that's what you'd look for if you're going to go on the Social Security website, special extra earnings for military service. And it's for people who had service between 1957 and 2001. And what they would do essentially is as a bit of a reward, if you will, uh, uh, they would add on to your earnings record, which they were already reporting your earnings to Social Security. Um, and you were participating in Social Security uh, in the military when you were, you know, after 1957. But if you had active duty basic pay between 1957 and 1977, you got credited an extra $300 each calendar quarter in which you received that active duty basic pay. So it's it's they didn't pay you the 300, but they credited you on your earnings record the 300. Um and then for active duty between 1978 and 2001, for every $300 in basic uh active duty basic pay, you got credited an additional $100 in earnings up to a maximum of $1200 a year. So they kind of changed the formula for how they gave you the credits. They didn't just give you a blanket credit for having active duty basic pay like they did from 57 to 77. So um, that's, I believe, what he's talking about. And my understanding is that happens automatically. Social Security and the military is connected well, you know, all part of the same government. Not that it is foolproof, but that military uh, information should be already connected over to Social Security. When you go in to claim, it's good to check and ask them if that has happened, if you've if you've gotten those adjustments, uh, just to confirm. But my suspicion is that already 
is part of your uh, record. And um, so your benefit estimates that they're providing to you now already include those credits if you were due those uh, for service between 57 and 2001. Uh, so I think that's what he's talking about there. But you can you can look it up um, uh, yourself, the details on this. And there's a, uh, a even a little PDF that they have that's entitled Military Service and Social Security that kind of puts all this stuff together. Um, and it's the publication number. If you really want to uh, drill down to it, probably the quickest is look for Social Security Administration publication number 05-10017. Uh, it's just a little two pager, but it kind of goes through how this all um, kind of works. So that's your cue to unmute. Yeah, I know, but I was on another screen, and again, I'm only on a laptop, and I got to use that little finger thing yeah, to no problem <laughs> to, mo- to move quickly. It takes me a while. Yeah. It's not like a mouse. Um, but I had to mute myself because there was a fly flying around in this room, and I've been running with a can of ortho flying insect killer trying to spray it. Isn't that the most annoying thing when those big black flies just kind of fly all around you? Oh, I'm so annoyed by that. Get a fly swatter, maybe. In midair? Well, yeah. A little practice. (laughs) No, it was easier to create this fog. (laughs) Which you're now breathing in. in, in, Which I'm breathing in, yes. But this fog that he flew through a couple of times... And now he he's on the ground going, so I know he, he the the little droplets got to him. But anyways, that's what I was doing. That's what I was on pause. And paint it, it quite a picture. A that's not you know really. If I would have tried to think about all the things you might be doing while I'm talking, that was not on the list. <laughs> that was not one of them. <laughs> Creating this this poisonous fog right. for a fly. Yeah. I can picture it now though. <laughs> <laughs> the things we do when we work from home. Okay. His second question gets into family, excuse me, family and disabled child benefits. Mm-hmm. So he continues. Second, and this is most important, since it appears that if I turn on my Social Security benefits at my full retirement age, we will max out our family benefit. Because of this, might it make sense for me not to wait to 70? and get the extra years of receiving the additional benefits for my son and wife, who will not be offset due to her age since she has child in care. It seems to me that even if I pass away between 66 and 10 months and 70, my wife and son will still receive the family maximum. Is this correct? I guess the bottom line is, do you recommend I take Social Security prior to 70 in my particular case? What would the pros and cons be? Could you please confirm? He's asking a lot of questions here. Uh, can you, and I'll repeat them if you need me to, Chris. Can you please confirm my understanding of our family benefits? By the way, between my military retirement pension, VA disability payments, and the small government pension I will have, we will easily match our minimum dignity floor. So that's kind of a bit of good information, except, well, I would suspect yeah. if he's yeah if he's career military has some VA disability benefits and is going to have from his you know, most recent work some FERS pension on top of that, I would expect them to cover their minimum dignity floor plus some 
with those because I've not that we work with a ton of military, but we have I've worked with a, a handful over time. So I've seen, you know, half a dozen to 10 of those come through. And uh, that's typically been the case. So uh, I didn't hear. But can I, yeah, can go I ahead. ask a question? Mm-hmm. Sure. Because when, when I read that pot, it, at first I'm thinking, well, you don't need your Social Security then. So maybe turning it on earlier to get all these ancillary benefits as well, rather than waiting 70 makes sense. But then I thought, what about survivorship? You have a disabled son that's going to need to be cared for for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And a, a spouse, what about survivorship? Mm-hmm. And what is the son entitled to, if anything, at the husband's death, the father's death, or the mother's death? And that's what started running through my head, and that's why I'm throwing it off to you. But mm-hmm. that, that was my questions to me was, yeah, gee, that would... I would want to see survivorship, not just while you're alive True. and True. all these pensions are there. Yeah, and that's a... Um... I think that's more important than ever in this case because I've seen quite a few cases that the military pension that a couple had, that one of the couple had, was single life, um, either by election or that was what was available or you know whatever the reason was. And the, so there was a big drop in the secure income at the passing of the person with the military pension. So he doesn't – I didn't hear you read anything about a survivorship, and since you brought up the question, I'm sure there wasn't mentioned in there. But that is definitely something he would want to take a look at, uh, survivorship, which might be one of the reasons to support waiting to 70 for Social Security claiming, because that would embellish any survivor leftover benefits uh, that would be available for his wife. So uh, let me tackle. There's a few different pieces here I want to mention. First of all, I have some good news about the family maximum. He made reference that he was kind of saying, you know, if I claim at my full retirement age, my PIA being about $3,000 a month, um, and then with the benefits going to my wife and my child, which would each qualify for up to 50% of that, which would be another $3,000, however, capped at the family maximum. So the total the three of them could receive is the $5,400 that you mentioned. He'd already already found out what his family maximum was. And so uh, his his question, what he implied there was, gee, if I wait to 70, I'm still capped at this family maximum. The good news is that's not how the family maximum works. The family maximum only considers your PIA in the calculation. Now, it works against you when you claim before your full retirement age and are receiving a lower amount. They still apply your PIA to the family maximum calculation, but it works in your benefit when you've reached your full retirement age or after. In other words, delayed retirement credits that increase your benefit don't count against the family maximum. So he would, in fact, receive a monetary benefit on a monthly basis if he waited to 70 because he's not going to be limited by the family maximum. Those additional delayed retirement credits are going to be available dollar for dollar uh, on top of what he's receiving compared to if he was claiming at his full retirement age. As a reminder, him delaying past uh, his full retirement age will not increase the amount that his wife or child could get. They're still going to be limited to 50% of his PIA, uh, but his own benefit could. In saying that, I'm not then jumping to, gee, for that reason, he needs to wait till 70. 
because I think in his case, with the combination um, of the military pension, the VA disability payments, the FERS pension that he's he's earning right now at his current job, uh, and the Social Security, even at full retirement age, they probably will have a good combination of secure income. And waiting may not be that big a deal, and he will forego for three years and two months benefits that could flow of about uh, $2,400 a month into his household. That's the difference between his PIA and the uh, family maximum that would, he could be receiving if his, if his wife and child were receiving benefits once he claims. That $2,400 a month for that uh, 38 months is a pretty hefty dollar amount. And so I would be leaning in his case uh, to seriously consider claiming earlier at full retirement age. That said, we don't know enough about his overall situation to say for sure that's the way to go. But it's cases like this that undermine the more general recommendation to have one of the two spouses delay to 70, which you hear us talk about all the time. Because for most couples, they don't have military pension, FERS, VA disability payments, and then these child benefits that could be earned once they're in retirement. When you have those all in the mix, it changes the dynamics of the whole situation. And you really need to look at the whole story. So uh, I can't say for sure, but I think he's on the right track of considering claiming earlier. I would just be concerned with what Jim mentioned, which is survivorship. Take a look at how all these different income sources change when you pass away. And will your wife and child still be in a good position? Because what can help your wife is delaying to 70. That would create the largest survivor benefit. She will receive all of your benefit and your child will receive 75% of your PIA. So uh, when you pass away, the child benefit goes from 50% to 75 and the uh, spousal survivor benefit goes from 50% to 100% of what you are collecting. It's even better, right? Even better than 100% of your PIA if you had delayed to 70. Um, again, you're going to give up chunk of change. So you're going to have to weigh that and look at, gee, if I, if I do that to get that extra uh, social security benefit, uh, could I have taken that money that would have flowed to my wife and my child and put myself in a better financial position than the higher social security payment uh, that would be available to her if I waited till 70 and then predeceased her. So um, those are kind of all the, the things. And, and I can't, again, give you a you definitely should do this or that, but hopefully I filled in a few of the, the blanks and, and kind of uh, clarified uh, a little confusion as to how the family maximum works. Um, but I, I do think you need to look at it and, like Jim said, pay particular attention to the survivorship scenarios and make sure you're comfortable with that. Gotcha. Okay. There's a little pause there. Were you doing CPR on the, on the fly? No, no, no. Did, did you regret your is, decision to gas him? No, the fly is resting peacefully in a paper towel. Uh, uh, He's not moving much anymore. Will there be a service later? <laughs> there very well maybe. I might go out and feed it to the toads in my yard, but that, that may. That wasn't, a lot quite, of toads. that wasn't quite the service I was thinking of, but. Yeah. <laughs> I think the toads would appreciate it. Call I don't that know. The circle of but life, and now you're going to poison the toads life. with a contaminated fly. Yeah, but that's fly. just it. I might poison the toads, so I yeah. think I will 
forego feeding my toads. Okay. Maybe you could uh, wash he, it somehow. You could clean it off and then give it to the toad. <laughs> Take a little soft toothbrush and a little I, I honestly don't think a toad water. is going to eat a dead fly. I think they want the live ones. Well, you could glue it on a little toothpick and make like fly it around and make a buzzing sound in front of it and see if it would take it. No, no. Now, now you're just being silly. We're going to get more negative one-star ratings. <laughs> well, those are five-star jokes right there, I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, five-star jokes that are going to give us one-star ratings. All right, this gentleman also had a life insurance question. Hmm. Question two, and I'm going to consider this a totally separate question, folks. It has nothing to do with Social Security, but I will answer it, or we will opine on it. It's not really an answer. Well, we can give him an answer, probably not the answer. He's a specific answer, like he's asking, but a more generalized thing for him to think of. Okay. So remember the setup, though, Chris. In his early 60s, disabled son who will be disabled for life, doing pretty good right now with secure income, trying to figure out a Social Security claiming strategy, can cover his minimum dignity floor, but we are unsure of his survivorship scenario if he passed away early. Keeping in mind, he has a disabled son who is going to be disabled for the rest of his life. We have no information from this couple or this individual who's writing on behalf of the family uh, what his assets are. Does he have significant, sufficient enough assets to help take care of his disabled son? Anybody who has a dependent who is dependent on them, not trying to be redundant, but anybody who has a human who is going to be dependent on them for the rest of their life, you have a life insurance issue because life insurance insures a life. For most retirees, I don't think you need life insurance. If you look at life insurance from the way it was designed, now I say most, not most of our podcast listeners who tend to have several million, if not more, of net worth and more complex situations and may be subject to state estate taxes in the 11 or so states or 15, I forget how many states charge a state estate tax, and they generally begin at a million dollars or so. There can be reasons for life insurance for those people, but the population as a whole Few retirees need life insurance. Life insurance, though, is designed to replace the economic loss that could be suffered by someone at your death. It's no different than homeowner's insurance that will replace the economic loss of losing your home. Otherwise, your home's death. It burns down. In Colorado, that happens quite regularly. It probably won't happen much this year, we hope, because of the rain that Chris is still still whining about. But homes in Colorado burn. We had a massive wildfire just two years ago that now, did you see, they're blaming the energy company Excel for. But it burned, folks, on December 30th. That's how late in the season. It can be dry in Colorado. Over a 1,000 homes in less than six hours. That was a crazy fire. Mm-hmm. Homeowner's insurance is designed to replace a catastrophic loss of the home. 
life insurance is designed to replace the lost income, suffering a catastrophic loss, your life. Now, during your younger years, when you're generally married and raising a family, there is an economic loss at the breadwinner or winners, plural, if both spouses are working, death. And I would argue even if there was a stay-at-home spouse who was not producing dollars in the traditional sense, but raising children, that is a job. And that is a job that needs to be replaced. And they should have life insurance as well. So if you have children who are in their 20s and 30s and 40s and raising families, make sure they have adequate life insurance. And don't say, oh, the husband or the wife is stay at home. They don't need the insurance. We have to get the insurance on the working spouse. B.S. That working spouse has to keep working if the other spouse dies and all of a sudden they're being faced with having to pay all these childcare expenses. However, When you retire, especially if you have secure income, and especially secure income that's joint and survivor, Mm -hmm. which is one of the issues we don't know here, but when you have income as a retiree that will continue after your death, there generally is not an economic loss at your passing. As morbid as this sounds... There's an economic gain. We don't have to worry, or the surviving spouse no longer has to worry if you need long-term care or additional medical expenses. They don't have to feed you and clothe you and provide ongoing medical care that has nothing to do with long-term care medical expenses. So there can be an economic boost. Now we can get into tax penalties and widow-widower penalties and things like that. That gets beyond the scope of the point I'm trying to make. When we answer this gentleman's question, and I'm trying to talk more broadly beyond just his specifics, when you're considering what he's considering, what to do with an underperforming life insurance policy, there's many moving parts. He picks up on something in his question, as you'll see, though. Should he keep this policy or would he be better served with long-term care? And what I'm trying to get at, Chris, and please tell me to shut up and opine if you've got things you want to say. But where we often work with people is during your younger years, 20s, 30s, 40s, there is a very, very strong need for life insurance if you are a family. I don't have life insurance and I don't have boat insurance. Do you know why I have neither of those two insurances, Chris? Well, I know you no longer have a boat. Right. So I don't need boat insurance. I don't have life insurance because there's no one who's going to suffer an economic loss if I die. Now, you might be sitting there saying, Jim, you have a business. I do. And I wish I could get life insurance now because I would like to leave the business dollars if I die so it would be easier for Chris to keep running it. But because of my stroke, I'm uninsurable. And I have an issue that goes down a whole other rabbit hole. But what I'm trying to get at during my younger years, my 20s and 30s, when I was a cop, I didn't have life insurance because I wasn't married. I had no children. Nobody would suffer an economic loss at my death. 
In my 30s and 40s, when I got into financial planning, same thing. No spouse, no children, very tiny business, no economic loss at my death. I had an agreement with a couple other advisors I knew. They were going to take over my what was called the quote-unquote book of business and handle my clients if I died. Now it's a little more complicated. We have other protections in place. I have more than enough equity and assets in the properties I own to funnel dollars into the business if I die. And Chris can continue to keep operating the business. But I can't get life insurance anymore uh, because of my stroke. So take some of that and apply it to yourself. As you get into your 50s and 60s, what is the biggest risk to your family now? You dying unexpectedly or living too long? And this is often a difficult decision that needs to be made by people. But this gentleman has something unique a disabled child that will need care. In a typical retirement scenario, we do see situations where people come to us and they have an old permanent life insurance policy, permanent, and put that in quotation marks, because mm-hmm. unless it's a SGUL, oh, not even S, get rid of the S, a GUL, Guaranteed Universal Life Policy, that is truly guaranteed as long as you pay the premiums, any type of permanent policy outside a whole life, a whole life is, is much more solid than variable life or universal life and index universal. Those are intended to last, hence the name permanent, but they're not guaranteed to last. So you have to constantly evaluate them to make sure they're performing and will last your entire life. We often get situations where people come to us, like this man is about to ask in his question, what do I do with this policy? Is it economically worth keeping? And that is a decision that we can't answer on the podcast. We truly, in order to answer it, need much more detailed information. But we can talk to you about what we look at as you evaluate this in your own situation. If you were to die as a retiree, is there someone who's going to suffer an economic loss? For most people, that answer is no. But for people with special needs or people who have secure income tied to them as a single life, yes, there could be an economic loss at your death. If you have a special needs child, there could be an economic loss at your death. If you live in a state that has estate taxes and you have several million dollars of net worth, yes, there could be an economic loss at your death that could be reduced or eliminated with life insurance. But outside of those areas, living too long in retirement can cause a far bigger financial hardship than dying too soon. And sometimes you have to look and say, is it worth keeping this policy that was designed to help my family when I had young, minor children and a stay-at-home spouse and a mortgage and debts? All that's gone. I now have Social Security and a pension or an income annuity and assets. 
and a home that's paid off. Living too long could be a bigger burden. And sometimes replacing that life insurance policy with a long-term care policy might make sense. Anything you want to add? I'm just trying to set the stage to some of the things to look at. Because he asks us outright, you'll see in a minute, what do you think I should do? We can't possibly answer that. We can only give ideas to think of. Yeah, and this all ties into those uh, survivorship scenarios that we always like to look at, where we will take a look at a plan with a, a couple uh, you know, living to a ripe old age together, but then we look at uh, two alternative hypothetical versions of that, where we have each of them one at a time pass away much earlier. And just to see all the dynamic changes, the changes in the expenses, the changes in the income sources, the changes in, you know, assets might change. There, there might be cases in a, in a blended family where the assets, some of the assets don't naturally stay with the surviving spouse. They go to kids at the passing of one of the uh, uh, spouses. So it's, it's all those things together you need to look at. And then that, that economic loss, that economic stress that is created, if, if it is, will show up in those. So that's, that's the, you know, our way of looking at that. I think it's pretty common with, with financial planners or retirement planners in general that are paying attention to survivorship scenarios. They'll literally run a projection or analysis with the, with the loss of, of each spouse one at a time to just take a look at it and test it and, and identify. And sometimes, especially in a case like this, where you have that, that disabled child dependent upon you for the rest of your lives and beyond. We haven't even talked about what's going to happen when both of them are gone. Uh, he didn't bring that up, or at least hasn't brought it up yet. But that would definitely be something to be looking at. And there might be a strong case for uh, some permanent life insurance. And if he's got VA disability payments, he might not be insurable anymore. Maybe his wife is. So you at least insure, you know, you know, something uh, there at that point. But um, hopefully he's got enough other resources and plans where they've already kind of decided how they're going to deal with that at that both of their passing. But that's definitely something to look at in this case as well and could justify looking into some life insurance. Okay, perfect. So let's get a little bit into his question. I currently have two life insurance policies, a term policy that will end when I reach 70 for $100,000. Let me pause there for those who don't understand term policies. This is exactly what it sounds like. It's not permanent where it's designed to last the rest of your life. And as I said, unless you have a whole life policy, which truly are, even though they technically could not make it I, term excuse me whole life policies even though they're outrageously expensive and have high fees they pretty much will last for as long as as they are projected to last for a um, guaranteed universal life policy as the name sounds is guaranteed to last however long you specify you generally can pick any age you want up to 121 nowadays and as long as you pay the premium on time, that policy will pay the death benefit. A variable universal life, a universal life, an indexed universal life, this starts getting into the wackiness where they can, I don't want to use the verbiage game the system, but unfortunately many insurance agents in the past, before they passed a lot of new rules, AG rules they call them, actuarial guideline, um, 
preventing agents from using overly optimistic projections to make these things look really good, which was done a lot in the past. Those types of policies, even though they're designed to be permanent, are not truly guaranteed to be permanent. You have to really look at the performance of them. They will have a guaranteed um, illustration showing the worst case scenario, but that will often be a policy that lasts no way near for your entire life. If you want it to last for your entire life, those policies have to perform at a certain level. And that's the kind of policy he has. And there's no guarantee it's going to last. And if it blows well, up... Well, the first one, used... the, the term policy, he said he had two. You only mentioned the term oh, policy. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. That yes, one's guaranteed it's... to 70. That yes, one, that yes. one is, I apologize. That one's straightforward, no concerns, as long as you pay the agreed-upon premium, the contracted premium. It's in force until he reaches the end of the term, which he says is when he turns 70. Correct. The other I policy I you haven't that. mentioned yet. Right. I forgot that. Remember, I'm breathing a fog of ortho flying bug spray. So it might have fogged my memory. I forgot. I started talking about term. Uh, the term policy will last for a specified period of time. Usually buy them in, in increments of five, five, 10, 15, 20, 25, or 30 years. And as long as you pay the premiums and pay them on time and within the 30-day grace period they'll give you, they guarantee that policy will last as long as the term. Now, when the term expires, the premium just skyrockets through the roof. And it's designed to do that. It's designed to be a pure, simple form of insurance for the length of the stated term. His ends at 70. Okay, has a $100,000 face value. Just simply means if he dies anywhere between now and age 70, his surviving spouse will receive $100,000. He also has, he continues, I have a prudential variable policy with a face value of $100,000. What he means by that, it's a stated death benefit of $100,000, similar to the term policy, folks, $100,000. But a variable universal life policy is designed to last his entire life. And it's designed to grow what is called cash value. Cash value is simply dollars paid into the policy in excess of the premiums needed in that particular year. The government said you can keep them inside the policy. You don't have to remove your excess premiums. If you put more money in, then the insurance company needs that particular year to cover the cost of insurance those extra dollars can stay inside the policy. A variable policy will allow him to, quote unquote, invest those excess premiums in separate accounts. We talked about this when we talked about variable annuities recently. A separate account looks like a mutual fund, talks like a mutual fund, walks like a mutual fund, but it's not a mutual fund. It'll probably have the same names. It's going to look very similar, but it has different fees than a mutual fund outside of the variable policy. The fees are usually significantly higher than the mutual fund version that you could buy outside of the universal life policy. That's because the investment manager is going to be paying the insurance company for the privilege of having their 
separate accounts available to you for investing. But the variable policy allows this individual to direct his excess premiums into an investment that hopefully will grow in value. And his did. He said, uh, I got to pick up where I am. Okay, $100,000 prudential variable policy with a face value of $100,000, but a death benefit of about $130,000 due to the investment portion. Keep in mind the death benefit and the cash value are intertwined. Don't lose sight of that. I would have to see an illustration of this policy because he said, I have a $46,000 of cash value and I have a, he said, a death benefit of around $130,000. Not quite sure if he's reading that correctly. So I don't, I, I'd have to see the illustration because you don't get both if you die you don't get the death benefit or your beneficiaries don't get the death benefit and your cash value the death benefit and cash value are combined meaning the longer you live and the higher the cash value gets the less risk to the insurance company because your death benefit is a combination of your cash value, the guaranteed death benefit, plus any outstanding loans, or minus rather, any outstanding loans. So if you borrow from your policy and die, your beneficiaries don't get the full death benefit. They will subtract out the loans from the death benefit. He's really going to need to order what is called an in-force illustration and get from the insurance company what they are projecting this policy will do for the rest of his expected life expectancy. And when you order an in-force illustration on a variable policy, they're most likely today going to use a 5 or 6% expected rate of return. Years ago, they were using up to 12. Regulators put a stop to that. Today, they'll probably use a 5, 6. You might see an 8. I would ask for a few illustrations. You can let them use whichever rate of return they want. But then you should probably ask them, you know, show me a 6 and show me a 4. So you can get an idea at various average rates of return what the policy is going to do. And you have to get a better understanding of what your death benefit is. It is possible that his death benefit now has risen to 130000 guaranteed if he was buying additional death benefits over the years. I don't know. I don't know what he did with the policy. But that would make more sense, Chris, than to say, I have a $100,000 death benefit and $46,000 of cash value. At your death, your beneficiaries don't get $146,000. If the death benefit is $100,000, they're going to get your $46,000 of cash value and $54,000 from the insurance company, leaving $100,000. 
My gut tells me he has a death benefit now of 130 with 46,000 of cash value, mm -hmm. meaning your beneficiaries will get the 36,000 of cash value, but then they're going to get from the insurance company 84,000. I hope my math is right. I did that in my head and it's foggy with ortho, mm -hmm. but they'll get 86,000 from the insurance company bringing them 130,000 total. Don't think your beneficiaries get both, the full death benefit and the full cash value. They work in unison. So he continues, the main problem is that although my premiums are only $76 a month, in a year they are gonna jump to 400 a month. That's a massive increase, Chris. Mm -hmm. That's why when I read that, I want to know how much higher can they keep going? What is the illustration showing? He continues. So it's going to go again to almost five grand a month now. Excuse me, uh, a year. I have had health problems and would likely not be able to get additional life insurance or long-term care coverage at least at a reasonable price. I feel your pain, listener. I am uninsurable for life insurance. I am uninsurable for long-term care insurance because I had my health issue. As we get older, I'm going to be, oh God, I can't say this. Coming right around the bend. I know. In a couple of weeks, folks, July 24th, yours truly will reach the age of 40. Lordy, Lordy, look who's 40. It's sad. It's sad. But, it, you know, it is what it is. I can deal with 40. Okay. But not, he continues. But not 60, right? Oh, no, no, no. It's not 60. is 20 years from now, dude. I'm not turning 60. I'm turning 40. Mm -hmm. Man, I love this ortho. It really makes me think <laughs> strange things. Yes, I am going to hit the big 6-0, folks. Ah. <sighs> But anyways, my point is, I never thought I would have a stroke. Three years ago, I never thought I was going to have a stroke. Six months later, it changed everything. Don't put life insurance off or long-term care insurance if you think you're going to need them. That's the only thing I'll get into there. So he continues. Would you recommend that I cash this variable policy in when I turn 65 and purchase another instrument that might be a better value for life insurance or long-term care? I'm confused on that, listener, because you're telling us in one sentence, you don't know if you're going to be able to get it or even get it at a reasonable price. However, you have a year to figure, well, not even a year, you, I don't know when you turn 65, but you said next year the premiums rise to 400 you might want to start talking to insurance agents, seeing if you are insurable, maybe go through underwriting on a life insurance policy. You're under no obligation to buy it, but go through actual underwriting and see if you're insurable and what it would cost. Then you can decline the coverage if you want. It's just going to give you an idea if you're insurable and what it will cost. The same thing on long-term care. Now, on long-term care, you can probably answer a questionnaire and a good long-term care agent will give you an idea if you would be insurable or not. But you need to start finding out if you are and what are these going to cost because you have to compare that to what you currently have. 
So he continues, I really do not believe, but I might be wrong, that it's going to be worth paying 400 a month to maintain this policy. I estimate I have so far contributed 28000 in premiums to it since 1994. This is a long permanent policy that he's had. I don't know if a policy purchased that long ago is still good today and what it's expected to do. So here's what I think he should do, Chris, and then you can say what you think. You have a special needs son. You and your wife should be planning and doing some calculations on what that child is going to need if either of you, or both of you rather, die earlier than expected. It's nice to think you'll both live into your 90s, and if you did, how much longer is your child's life expectancy? But what if both of you died in your 70s? Is your child's life expectancy still another 30, 40 years? What will your child require and how much are you able to give? We know nothing about your finances. Do you have millions in net worth or hundreds of thousands in net worth? That's going to play a major role in your decision. You also should not consider replacing a life insurance policy until you can get a better idea from an illustration of what that policy can do for you. You should also find out if you are insurable for life insurance. Because if you are, you have 46000 of cash value. You could transfer that cash value, perhaps, I don't know, into a newer policy that maybe has better benefits, better underwriting. I don't know. You, you are significantly older than you were in 1994. <clears throat> I'll concede that. And you've had health issues. But without you getting an idea of what you could do with the policy, it's hard for you or me or Chris to tell you what to do with it. But then you have to evaluate <clears throat> your long-term care. But he may be eligible for special long-term care from the government, right, Chris? Yeah, and this is an area, it's a little fuzzy, but there are, you know, with, with, with VA benefits, which is certainly not our area of expertise, there are certain benefits for him, not likely uh, necessarily for her. So maybe the LTC needs to be more on her. And if she hasn't had the same health issues, she could be much more insurable, the, the wife, for both life insurance and LTC. But I would get some clarification on the benefits that you might receive through the VA system uh, if you needed ongoing care uh, later on. And that might reduce the need for traditional LTC for you, which which you may have trouble getting. The fact that you've got a VA disability payment leads me to believe that it's going to be challenging to get an LTC policy. That was my cue again. I'm okay. sorry. <laughs> no, I got a text. I got a couple of 18-year-old kids coming. It was nice having 18-year-old kids, folks. So I found them on uh, some app called Nextdoor. And they're going to come over and do some landscaping for me and they were texting, and I didn't want people to hear the phone going beep because I didn't have it on silence. Okay, so back to what I was thinking this gentleman might need to consider or anybody needs to consider. 
Never, ever, ever cancel a life insurance policy outright until you pay some attention on what to do with it. I do feel this man, even though he's retired and has ample secure income, there could also be a need for life insurance because of his special needs son. But I'm not overly excited with what he has shared so far about his policy. He's put $28,000 into it. He only has $46,000 of cash value since 1994. This is telling me this is probably a heavily fee-laden, old, bloated policy from the 1990s. I don't know for certain, but he needs to research and find out. I'm also sitting here scratching my head, Chris. I don't have my HP-12C. Do you have that little Texas Instrument thing of Majiggy you have? Yes. What rate of return would he need if somebody started today with, I can't say 46000 Here's what happens, folks, if he were to close this policy. He has 46000 of life of uh, cash value that will be paid out. 28000 of it will come out tax-free because it's going to be considered a return of his quote-unquote investment, mm-hmm. even though it wasn't. It's what was used to buy the insurance and stuff. He paid $28,000 in premiums, though. He can deduct that from the 46000 But the remaining dollars from the 28000 the 18000 remaining, those dollars will be taxable to him as income. Let's just assume he owes $3,000 of taxes on that. That means he will have $15,000 left over after taxes plus Mm $28,000. So all total, he has what? $43,000. If he invested $43,000 and added $4,800 a year to it, this is giving a big assumption. His premiums don't continue to rise. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. But let's just say he started with that present value, invested 4800 a year, and he earned even just a 5% return. How many years would it take to reach 130000 I should have done this math before. 117 months. I did it monthly because he was talking about doing it monthly. So it would take him nine, almost 10 years. Okay. I don't know if this is a huge, valuable life insurance policy listener. Because if you're uninsurable, yes, if you died tomorrow, your family would get 130000 But I don't know your other assets. If you died tomorrow, you're still early enough in your retirement, you probably haven't spent any of your other assets yet. Not quite sure 130000 would make much of a difference to your surviving spouse and son. I'm thinking more of your son. I'm hoping your surviving spouse has enough assets of her own or family assets combined and that your pension's a joint and survivor. And one hundred and thirty thousand isn't going to make much difference to her. Well, the the uh, the first pension and the uh, excuse me the um, military pension. The question is if they have a survivor or not. The neither one qualify for a hundred percent survivor. So she's definitely right. going to take a cut when he passes. The question is how much of a cut, 
depending on what option was chosen on the military pension in particular. He but hasn't, don't he forget, hasn't turned on the first pension yet, so. He hasn't even done Social Security yet. If he waits to 70 on Social Security, this calculation still hasn't been done. Right. So there's a lot of moving parts here, folks. That's why we can't answer this. I'm just trying to give you ideas to think of, all of you, as you do it yourself or help your family and friends, because I know you guys love financial planning, evaluate life insurance policies and the need for insurance in retirement. So he, to me, I don't, I just don't think this policy was anything spectacular, mm -hmm. but I don't want my broad-based assumption based on nothing more than what you wrote to sway you. You've got to look at illustrations. You've got to get multiple expected rates of return. But to me, if you're a quote unquote break even to hit 130,000 total of death benefit is nine years at a 5% return. What if you earned five and a half or six or six and a half? for a lot longer than nine years. That's why you need an illustration. You need to see what the insurance company is telling you you might have in death benefit and cash value at various ages. And an illustration will show you every single age. Right. So that's pretty damn good. You can then write a spreadsheet, all you spreadsheet geeks, and say, well, if I moved 28,000 tax-free into an investment, and uh, 18000 or whatever it was, taxable, and net out your taxes and said, I have another thirteen, fourteen, fifteen thousand 15000 on top of that. And here is what the insurance is saying I might have at these various ages. Here's the rate of return I would need to earn on that to equal that. Now, keep in mind, the money from the life insurance will be tax-free. So you might want to adjust your expected rate of return for the taxation that will be owed. Don't forget to do that. Adjust for the taxes, meaning you're probably going to have to earn a slightly higher rate of return to pay the taxes to net out the same 130000 tax-free that your beneficiaries would get. Then it's just a matter of trying to decide, will I live that long or not? But pay attention to what if you died earlier. If your family is really going to need that 130000 if the number, if you just don't have enough other assets, you might be forced to, to keep this policy. But if the 130000 is more a cherry on top of an amazing Sunday, and it doesn't really matter if that cherry falls off as you're walking out the door or not, then yeah, I would look at this from more of an investment standpoint. Because that's what a variable policy is. It's an investment wrapped in an insurance policy. I'm not spitting nickels over a $100,000 death benefit that's going to be losing value every year anyways because of inflation. And you put twenty eight grand in and you only have 46000 a death benefit? I have a couple of issues with this policy. Anyways, that's my thoughts. Do you have any? No, I think we... Beat this horse probably, to death? Probably did, yeah. And we probably should answer at least one more question so we don't get... Good. This one's for you. So you can do of, it. of spending an hour on one email. Quite cheaply. <laughs> two questions. Oh, I get two it. questions. Though. I get it. <laughs> we can actually get two answers in if you'd like because oh, you could probably answer sure. this one quickly. Okay. The reason I say it's for you, it's an Irma question. Hmm, okay. hi, 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 Jim and Chris. 
I live in a state that is home to the most Olympic medals. I don't know if this is true. I asked ChatGPT to come up with a trivia question for my state. Hmm. Hmm. California. How the hell did you know that? Because it's so big. I mean, there's just the odds, right? Just so so many people. Wow. Okay. Or do you have ChatGPT open in front of you? No, I don't. Okay. Here's his question. Can Irma brackets ever go down? I usually do Roth conversions at the end of the year based on the Irma brackets that are released a few months prior. I have always just assumed that these were new baseline and I never needed to worry about them dropping. Then potentially in two uh, then potentially 2 years later causing me to pay more for Medicare. Perhaps you have answered this in the past, but I'm a rather new listener. Thank you for the wealth of information and look forward to continuing learning from both of you. You might want to just explain a little bit about Irma and mm-hmm. can they drop? So Irma is the income-related monthly adjustment amount, or what we affectionately call the Medicare premium surcharge, which essentially causes you to pay more for your Medicare Part B and Part D uh, policies uh, if you have modified adjusted income over certain levels, over certain figures, which do tend to change year by year with inflation, kind of like the tax brackets. The Irma brackets are fundamentally, we'll call it, designed to increase with inflation. However, Congress has ultimate control over them, so they could change them. They could freeze them. They could lower them technically, which is what he's talking about. But the default is, and what the expectation is, is those IRMA brackets will continue to grow with inflation. Um, but in you know when IRMA first started, they weren't capturing enough people into those brackets, less than they expected. So to start capturing more people, they froze the brackets for a while. Um, but the only time that they would go down would be either in a deflationary period, which I don't, I'd have to read to see if it's even possible if we actually have deflation, if they would by default lower them. But deflation is unlikely in our, uh, especially in our current environment, um, or Congress lowers them, which is, I think, a bigger potential than having um, deflation. So why would Congress lower them? Because they want to capture more people into paying higher Medicare premiums which I think is a a bigger risk, actually, than people who uh, are worried about Social Security changes, only because Medicare is more highly stressed financially than Social Security. The the Medicare issues are more imminent than Social Security, so I would be uh, less surprised about changes to the IRMA brackets, moving them down, than, um, you know, fundamental harmful changes to social security for people who are over the age of 60 or so. So uh, social security gets all the attention for some reason, but Medicare is the bigger issue right now currently. Um, So could they go down? Yes. Are they designed to go down? Not really. They're designed to be adjusted with inflation, which in this country and most countries tends to go up. Uh, Sometimes they are kind of stagnant, but uh, especially now with inflation, those Irma brackets have been trudging upward as inflationary adjustments are made to all the tax brackets. So, Yep, I like that. And the only thing that I would add is they can be frozen. Right. Congress froze them for 10 years right. after passing Irma. Right. They froze them for 10 years. And then they were unthawed. It wouldn't surprise me if they freeze them again. Right. Uh, some politicians, and I won't name who, but many politicians on both sides of the aisle – 
want to see 25%. I don't know how they randomly chose 25%. 25% of Medicare recipients paying more than the standard premiums. And the only way they can do that is to freeze these IRMA brackets. They were frozen for a decade and they might in the future freeze them again. Okay, I want to get through two more questions because they're really easy and that way people can say, wow, six questions. Excuse me. Six questions. Okay. I'm getting all excited. Okay. This next one is technically a IRA question, but it's definitely married to an annuity. But it's 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 both. Easy to answer. Hi, Jim and Chris. He did not give. Oh, wait, he did give a hint. <laughs> Sorry, I had a laugh at this one. Um, you'll guess this one for sure, but I like how we put it. I live in a state that's called the Garden State. But it's also where people who have allergies should not live. <laughs> I'm guessing he has allergies. Yeah, this one always baffled me, mainly because I've never visited the state. So I haven't been. I've only seen pictures of the, the non-garden part of the state. But uh, the garden state's New Jersey. Yeah, New Jersey. New Jersey's called the guys. I don't know why either. But um, anyways, part, part of it state. must be gardening and green. I only see the city parts of it because I you know, only see it when we're watching like football or something. Yeah, <laughs> so. Okay. Hi, Jim and Chris. I'm trying to decide if I want to buy a multi-year guaranteed annuity using money inside my IRA. Mm -hmm. We spoke at length about these folks just last month. We spoke at length about buying annuities inside IRAs, so we're not going to get into any of that. I listened to your podcast and I heard you say that the interest rates for multi-year guaranteed annuities are coming down, Mm -hmm. but I still saw some of them close to 5%. Mm -hmm. That is Correct, folks. Right now, you can get uh, three to five-year MIG is paying about 5%. Have they come down? Yes. Will they go back up? They may. Okay. Uh, Be that as it may, how can one buy a multi-year guaranteed annuity inside an IRA? Hmm. Do I contact the insurance company first who is selling the MIG and tell them where my IRA is? Or do I have to get a hold of my IRA custodian and tell them where the insurance company is? At the end of the day, will this MIGA that I want to purchase still be in my IRA? Or do I have to move it to another account with the insurance company? And what happens when the MIGA inside my IRA is finished and the term expires? Will they automatically send the cash back to the IRA it came from. Thank you. I'm trying to learn about MIGAs. Mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to put this in there because it had mm-hmm. to do with IRAs as well, folks. I've said this many times, and this is the best way to understand it. And if you're a new financial planner, pay attention. 401ks and other employer plans push the money out. IRAs pull the money in. So you don't get a hold of your IRA custodian to push out money to an insurance company to buy a MIGA. 401ks push, IRAs pull. Except for one exception, you will get a hold of the the IRA to push money into a 401k. It's a little loop that most people don't know. An IRA will push into a 401k. Really bizarre thing, but that's how they do it. But back to his question. Let's just say you're at Vanguard, listener. I have no idea where you are. 
and you want to buy a MIGA, and it's with insurance company ABC, you actually get a hold of insurance company ABC and open the MIGA with them. And they will ask you what type of account is the money in and who is the custodian. You would say IRA and Vanguard. And then you would give your Vanguard information. IRAs pull. The insurance company will open an IRA for you. And they will keep the money with them. Because it's their money. It's part of their general fund. It's a fixed annuity. It's a MIGA. It's theirs. Vanguard acts as a custodian and holds assets for you. They're not going to most likely bleed into the insurance company's software and, and platform. So the insurance company will open an IRA for you and they will pull the money from Vanguard. You just have to make sure the liquidity is there. The dollars are there. Now, when the MIGA matures, no, the insurance company isn't going to automatically just send it back to where it came. They're actually going to try to renew that MIGA for you. And they're going to send you letters, probably just one, as we're dealing with right now. One letter, usually a month or so before your annuity, quote unquote, matures, asking you what you want to do. If you do nothing, it will automatically renew into a new MIGA for the same number of years. So if you buy a three-year, it'll automatically renew into a new three-year. They also give you the option to move it, to close it, to transfer it. It'll all be spelled out to you in a letter that you will receive. But you have to tell them what to do. They're not just going to push it back to an IRA. One good thing that I like about MIGAs inside IRAs when they mature, because you have that IRA wrapper and because you can do a 60-day rollover, it is just real easy to say to the insurance company, if you don't want it, and assuming you have not done a 60-day rollover in the previous 12 months, You just tell them, close the IRA, MIGA, send me the money, don't withhold any taxes. When you get that check, you got 60 days, but don't dilly-dally, just turn around and put it right back into your Vanguard IRA. That way you're not dealing with the 30 days that they give you and delayed paperwork and mailings Mm -hmm. and missed emails and all this other stuff that happens. And trust me, folks, it happens. You just close the IRA MIGA, do it as a 60-day rollover, and put it right back into your IRA where it came from, assuming you didn't want to renew the MIGA for another term. See, Chris? Quick, easy, painless. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice job. I thought so. Uh, We got one more if you want to get to, and you can answer this one. Oh, no. Actually, no, no, no. Um, no, no, this one, this one will take me at least 10 minutes. Never mind. Okay. It's about NUA. He wants to know what NUA is. Oh, NUA is a hard never one heard to do quickly, especially when we have to tell I, you what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I could theoretically do it quickly, mm, but I'll try to do it. a little messy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So is that it? Um, yeah. Unless you want me to dig a quickie quicker your, one up. Yeah, probably not. I think we're good. We got four questions. Two of them happen to be one email, but we did four questions. So, Well, let me – I might be able to hand you 
We got a really short social security question in. Oh, this one. Here's our fifth question. We got it in. You can answer this, I bet you, in 10 words or less. Nice. You ready? Yep. No hint from this. Oh, he's from New Jersey. So he's from the same allergy-ridden garden state as the previous listener. Came in on our website, helpwithmysocialsecurity.com. Quick question, Chris. To qualify for child and care spousal benefits, does the child have to be biological or adopted? Or will a stepchild qualify? Ten words or less, I think you can do it. The stepchild qualifies. You can go a little deeper if you want. Oh. But that was good. <laughs> so so your child, uh, biological, adopted, or stepchildren uh, qualify for the child and care benefits. Okay, perfect. I mean, it's, I told you that I was an easy one. got to keep it quick, so. Perfect. We got six questions, dude. Nice. See, you are, was it six no, or five? five? I can't even remember five, now. But five. that's enough. Hey, close enough. Close yep. enough to six. Yep. And you thought we were only going to do one. <laughs> exactly. But that was two technical questions. There was one oh, on social security, one on life insurance. And then, then I, I, I did you all good, okay. folks. I got five questions in. Perfect. So if you want okay. to send in your own questions, send them to Jim directly. Jim at JimHelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S.com. And... Uh, uh, put in the subject line that's a question for the podcast. And long questions, short questions, you know, any kind of works. We might end up doing a marathon on one particular email. Uh, but I will say it will tend to be more um, uh, probable that you will get your question answered if you keep it rather short and contained. Those, I would say, we we try to hit um, yeah, the ones that are the lengthy ones, especially when there's tons and tons of detail in them that are very specific to you, those make it hard to do. Uh, even though we we spent a lot of time on this one, he didn't he didn't give us a he was kind of right on the edge of probably too much, but it, it was interesting because it was a you know a couple of of uh, topics that we don't cover very frequently, so that gave us the opportunity to talk about it. So we appreciate you uh, listening through those. And uh, appreciate listening to the show and sending in questions. So, Jim, you have a nice weekend, and we'll be back with everybody else uh, next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. 
The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.